and I appreciate your prayers as uh, I got to go and to Synod for the first time since I've, I've been here at the Tacoma Church, and I know uh, I appreciate those prayers. I know the uh, Elder Lupke and Pastor Young and all the rest who, who ventured over to Tennessee also appreciate that. Um, it was a wonderful time. It was something that um, really blessed me as I got to see uh, the different pastors and the different elders and how just everything works together here. And I, I can assure you, and I know you already know this, but um, those pastors in the Bible Presbyterian Church care about you. They are men of God who love their sheep. They want to see the kingdom of God thrive. They want the church to succeed, and overall, they want to glorify Christ. So it was a wonderful and encouraging time. So thank you for prayers, and for those who are still coming back from it, we would just still ask you to continue to pray for them as well. I think my mic is cutting in and out a little bit, so we're just going to go with the pulpit mic. Check, check. Okay, cool. So we'll go with that. Um, but my goal for this morning, as, as we go through this passage or these passages of John, my goal this morning is to have you walk away with confidence in your salvation. I want you to be encouraged this morning in the words that we read that John wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so as we prepare for the preaching as we prepare our hearts. Let us ask the Lord to bless the time as we bow and come before him in prayer. Father in heaven, we all come here today from different backgrounds, from different places in life. We're all experiencing different things. Many of us are rejoicing in the wonderful blessings that you have poured out upon us in our lives, and some of us are mourning because of whatever it may be, sin in our lives or um, the effects of sin on a fallen, in, in this fallen world. But Lord, you know where we all come from this morning. You know our hearts. You know our minds. And I just pray that you would help us to get all of that out of the way this morning that we would not be burdened by the things of the world, but we would be here in your presence, that we would be blessed by the preaching of your word, that you would speak to us by it. Lord, I pray that you would cause me to decrease, that Christ would increase, and we pray these things in the name of him who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of the first questions that we as people usually ask, and I don't think it ever goes away, is the question, why? As little kids, we seek to understand the things that are going on around us, so we ask, why? And there's a musical out there where there's a line in one of the songs that says that the law is laid upon us when as kids we first ask why. And as we grow up, as we uh, mature, and as we continue to learn, I think we still ask why. I think we can look at the news or we can look at what's going on around us and we may have this, why? Why is this happening? What's going on? What's the point in all of this? Now, if you have talked to me at all about my testimony or my time as a student in high school, 
you would know very quickly that I was a bad student. So if you are in high school or younger listening today, close your ears for just a second. I don't want to be a bad influence on you. But um, my dad took math for me my senior year. And that's a whole different story that we don't have time to go into today. But I almost didn't graduate because of math requirements. I also didn't gra- almost didn't graduate because I would skip school um, on a weekly basis. Because I would constantly ask the question, what is the point? What is the point to all of this that I am learning? I learned how to multiply in fourth grade. Why are we learning 17 different ways to get the same answer and different uh, routes to take? I didn't understand why, and to this day, I still don't really understand why. And usually, when I would approach my teacher about it, they would say, well, it's good to know in case you go into this field or this field or whatever it might be. But they would usually say, you know, it's good to learn it because you're not always going to have a calculator with you. To which I say, ha-ha, I have a calculator with me at all times. But the question of why still remains in my mind. And as we look back on this passage in John, and as we look back on this whole epistle of First John, we can look at and we can see themes that are talked about here. Um, we look back at the witness of Christ, that he is from the beginning, that those who testify of him are the ones who saw, the, saw him with their own eyes, touched him with their own hands. They are witnesses to Christ. We saw what it means to walk in the light and what it looks like to walk in darkness. We have defined love throughout these last few months. Uh, We've looked at who is Antichrist or what is Antichrist. And those who deny Jesus is the Christ. Those who went out from us because they were never of us. Uh, We looked at how you test the spirits around you. How you know what is true and from God and what is not. We see Christ's love for his church. And we've looked at what it looks like to overcome the world around us. And so all of this we can ask the question, what's the point? And I think as baby Christians, people can often come to text in scripture and say, what's the point of this? And even as mature Christians, we might say, maybe not in such a harsh way, but what does this mean? Why is this here? And this should be a question we say as we read the Bible because it causes us to dig deeper. If we come to a problem passage or something that we don't understand, the wrong thing to do is to just ignore it or say it doesn't matter. But what we should be doing is asking the question of why and letting the Holy Spirit lead us to truth. So this is a question I would encourage you all to ask, and not in the mindset of an immature high school student, but in the mindset of a mature Christian who desires to grow closer to Christ and to know the truth. So when we ask why and what is the point, John here in, chap- or in chapter 5 verse 13 actually answers that question for us. And he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So all of this, this summary that we have that we just went through, every point that has been made throughout this 
1 John epistle. The point of it, John says, is so that you can know that you have eternal life. And this is good news, Christians. In other words, we can say that it's the purpose of examination of ourselves to know the truth so we can have the assurance of our salvation and confidence to go boldly before the throne of Almighty God so that you may know that you have salvation. Now, as we look at the world and what the world says, there's a great lie that the world tells us, and that is we all have salvation in some way or another. I've been around non-believers or pagans or whatever it might be that when one of their loved ones dies they will turn to somebody or they will make a post on Facebook that says well I know that they're in a better place and what I want to ask them is well how do you know that how do you know they're in a better place what assurance do you have in this because I know for a fact you don't know Christ I know for a fact they don't know Christ, but they have bought into the lie of the world that says we all go to a better place when we die. And that's not just that everybody believes in a heaven, but it's that nobody wants to believe in a hell. And if there is a hell, nobody wants to believe that it's what the Bible tells us it is. They want to believe that it's an eternity of sinning, that it's just this great party that we get to have with all of our friends. Some people are up on clouds playing harps. We're down here having a good time. And that's not the picture that the Bible gives us of hell. Now, we have to take notice who John is talking to here when he tells us about this assurance of salvation. And he says it right here in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So John here is talking about Christians. He's talking to Christians. They are those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And John calls these people, these Christians, throughout his epistle, beloved. And I want to just take a moment to talk about what this word beloved means. Because I think sometimes, even as Christians, we can fall into the lie that God is angry with us. When we sin, when we, when we fall or stumble, that God is just up there ready to smite us, that he is ready just to take us out And that's not the picture that the Bible gives us for God's attitude towards Christians. But we are beloved of him. That our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And I know that this may sound like a very uh, Christian word to stand up here and call you beloved. But think about this. When pastor addresses you often, he calls you beloved. And this isn't because he wants to sound better than anybody else or or high and lifted up, but because he loves you as your shepherd and you as his sheep, as he serves the greater shepherd. You are beloved to him because you are beloved to Christ. And we get this picture that when we have children, they are beloved of us, that there is nothing that they can do that will make us love them any less. And so for a Christian, when you are in Christ, 
God loves you. You are beloved. And because God loves you and because you are beloved by him, we can have assurance of salvation, that we can know that we have eternal life. If you are in Christ, you are beloved by God. And I think we as Christians need to be encouraged in this sometimes because there is the constant onslaught of the world that tells us, truthfully, we're not good enough. And of course we're not good enough. But Christ is. But Christ is. So Christians are the only ones who can have true and full assurance of salvation. If we look at the different religious systems of the world, you can look at uh, Islam. Muhammad, here's a quote from Muhammad. He's talking to a woman, and he's addressing somebody who uh, just died. And he says, This man, death struck him, and I wish him the best in the name of Allah, by Allah. Although I am the messenger of Allah, I know not what will happen to me, just like you. So even the greatest man in, in Islam, Muhammad, did not know where he would end up after he died. They have no assurance of this. If we look to the Mormon doctrines and the Mormon uh, Book of Mormon, the, in 2 Nephi 25-23, it says, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. That's a really good thing. We, we can agree on that as well. But then you read after that, it says, After all we can do. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. It is a total works-based religion. And church, if we are relying on our own works, if we are relying on what we can do, we will never make it. And then we have agnosticism. And agnostics don't even know if there is a God, so there is no way that they can have any kind of assurance of what happens after they die. It's an interesting system. But we as Christians, we as those beloved by Almighty God, can and do have this assurance. We have confidence in this assurance. And I think of marriage for just a moment. Man is fallible. God is not. Or man, yeah, okay, that sounded weird in my head. God is perfect. Man is not. But I have confidence that when I go home later today, my doorknob to my house is not going to be switched out with something else. That when it's time for bed, I go up to my bedroom and my wife and I can sleep peacefully together because I have confidence in the promises that my wife and I make to each other. We have this house, we have this life together, and we get to share it. There's no doubt in my mind that, I hope, that I will have to be locked out of my house at any time in the future. But we know that happens. We know that there are Situations like that, where the marriage vows are broken and abandoned, and sometimes to the other person's shock and surprise. And we can sometimes reflect this on God. That we say we know the promises of God, we know and that when we're saved, we're saved, but maybe when I die, God's going to just decide, eh, I didn't really want that. He sinned too much or whatever. We don't act like we have confidence in the promises of God. But God gave us 
revelation. God gave us his word, and he preserved it down through history. And I think we need to have more confidence in him and his promises over the promises of our spouse or families or friends. Because we will and do fail. God does not. This last week, I was listening to a podcast, and the person in the podcast was trying to refute Reformed doctrine. He was trying to refute Calvinism, and specifically the doctrine of predestination and election. And he gave this illustration. He said, a man and woman get married. And they decide that they're going to have five kids. And of those five kids, two of them, they are going to dote on. They are going to give them the best clothes. They're going to feed them. They're going to cherish them. They're going to put them in all the sports and send them to the right schools. And they will know that their parents love them. And they will receive love from these children. But the other three, they're going to, well, we'll give you food, maybe a mattress. But... You know, you're not chosen by us. These two were, but you're not. The problem with this illustration is the assumption that every single person is a child of God, that every single person can identify God as their father. But we know that Jesus says that some are of their father, the devil. Not every single person is a child of God. Now, what's the point in me telling you all of this? The point is, if you are a child of God, the promise of God is assurance of salvation. That God is not going to treat you like an unloved rat, but that if you belong to God, if you are in Christ, you are beloved by him. And we can look back at, if you have a moment, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6 we can see the words of Jesus. Because many people will say, well, this is John writing. What does Jesus say about this? And I would say, I think John was was probably thinking back on this section of Scripture when he wrote what he says here. And so uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 39, it says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise it up on the last day. And John MacArthur says, If a dying Savior could bring us to God's grace, surely a living Savior can keep us in his grace. And Jesus affirms that here. He loses none who are called to him, but will raise it up on the last day. If Jesus is a Savior, and he is, church, if he truly is a Savior, we can have this confidence that he does indeed save. He doesn't just make salvation possible. You know, many people use the illustration of the lifeguard throwing the life vest or the the ring out into the water saying grab hold of it and and all that but the the truth is the bible says we're dead in our sins and trespasses so we can't grab hold of that life preserver but we actually have to be raised up to life that god has to be the one to do it we cannot do it ourselves and so this passage 
and this assurance of our salvation here is true. That Jesus says, I will lose none, but raise it up on the last day. So, other than salvation, what benefits do children of God have? If you are saved, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, you are beloved of him. So what else do we have? And John goes through this. But we have access to God through Jesus Christ. If we look at verse 14 of 1 John chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So two questions that I have for you this morning. The first one is, do you have an active prayer life? And this is not just your bedtime prayers, but do you have an active prayer life? Pray without ceasing. When you go through your day, when you wake up, do you thank God that you have another day on this earth, that you have air in your lungs as you go through your work day? Do you ask God to strengthen you? Do you ask God to help you with patience as you're dealing with people? Um, What does your prayer life look like? Now, a lot of people pray, and it's not just Christians. A lot of people in this world pray. Now, I don't know who or what they're praying to, But for many, it's not God. The second question I would have for you is, do you have a confident prayer life? This is not that we go up before God and come up and, well, hey, hey, God, uh, sorry, don't want to disturb you. I know you're busy. I know you have things going on. Maybe I can make an appointment with you later on. No, that's not what we're talking about. We have access to God. And yes, we are humble before his throne. We approach him in humility and in awe and reverence and in worship. But we can approach him in confidence. We can approach him confident that he does indeed hear our prayers. Because we have a mediator who stands there before him. Now, there are things that we need to consider that can hinder our prayers. And that can cause us to not have a confident prayer life or an active prayer life. And the first one is obvious, and that is unbelief. God is not obligated to hear the prayers of the unbeliever. But he can hear the prayers of an unbeliever as they cry out in repentance and as God grants them faith. God is not obligated to hear the prayers of those who doubt. Now, true Christians can struggle with doubt, but I think it can also hinder our prayer life. The third thing is if we love sin. If we look at the book of Psalms, chapter 66... In verse 18, we can see what is written here. It says this in verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. One way to hinder our prayers and damage our prayer life is to cherish sin. If we are in a season of sin, if we have uh, grasped on to a sin or find ourselves constantly giving into temptation, that can hinder our prayer life. Another thing that can hinder our prayer life is wrong desires or motivations when we do pray. 
We see that in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But we can also see it, and this goes along with the rest of our passage today, is in Proverbs 28, verse 9, if we push aside or ignore the will of God. Verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We must be in line with the will of God when we pray, church. And now I know sometimes this is difficult. I know that there are some times that we don't know what the will of God is in our lives. But we can be sure, I think, to know what the will of God is not in many occasions. And I've brought this individual up before, but uh, Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, has famously said that it is always the will of God to heal. That it is always the will of God to heal. And I say this next part with, with respect to him and, and the respect to the memory of, of his wife, but just recently his wife passed away of cancer. And I don't know how anybody can tell somebody that it is always God's will to heal when we see sickness all around us, and even sickness within faithful and good Christian people. Now, this is not to say we should not pray for healing or can't pray for healing. We can pray for healing, and I think we should pray for healing. But to understand that the will of God will be done, and that it's not always God's will to heal. We see broken marriages around us, and we can pray that God will mend those marriages, that God will heal those marriages, that God will bring those two people back together to remember the vows that they made before God. But we also know that it is a reality that sometimes marriages end. Unbelieving friends and family is another category that we can pray for them and we should pray for them. And I think the next section of 1 John uh, will deal with this a little bit about the sin leading to death and the sin leading not to death. But I'll let Pastor handle that um, next week. But we can and do pray for our unbelieving friends and family. But we also know that... It's not always God's will to save, either, that God has his elect. We don't know who those are. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we urgently go forth into the world. But God knows who are his, and we can take confidence in that. And we know that God is bigger than all of these situations. He's bigger than the broken marriage. He's bigger than the unbelief. He's bigger than the cancer or the dementia or whatever it might be. And God can heal. And God does good. God is always good, church, even when we don't see it right away. Now moving on to verse 15, John says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask... We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, this is one of those verses that people can take out of context or to say what it doesn't mean. Now, what this verse is not saying, this verse is not saying that God is a genie. 
that we can just pray. As long as we pray and ask God, he will give it to us. I want a million dollars so I could expect God to answer that prayer and give me a million dollars. That's not what this is saying. It's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Um, it's interesting to see Facebook and Twitter. Um, you'll see these posts that have a picture of an angel, and it says, good things are coming to you in the next day. If you claim it in Jesus' name, comment and like this post in Jesus' name. And you just see comment after comment of people saying, I claim this. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. And not only is that just bad theology, that's taking God's name in vain. That's using God as your own personal genie to give you whatever you want. But one of the things about this is, we're also not limited to three wishes, so to speak, with God. We're not limited in our requests to him. But in Christ, we can come before God, the throne, again and again and again. So what this verse is saying is, one, that we need to be seeking the will of God. That it's not our will, but it's God's will that will eventually and ultimately be done. Now, God can and does bless some, uh, some people with other things than, than others, and that's fine. But God will accomplish his will. And God's will will always be done. If we look at the passage we read in the scripture reading, chapter 14, we see that Jesus is talking about this salvation that we were assured of, but also talking about the will of God. Now, Jesus says that he is the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the access to the Father. He is the only way of salvation. We see also in verse 6 that his words are true, as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We know that he is Yahweh. This is not saying that Jesus is the Father, but he says the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. But he is Yahweh. And the word of God confirms this assurance as they are the words of Yahweh God. Again, this is not a prosperity message. When, when Jesus says that, that uh, if you ask anything in his name, that he will give it. But he is saying, be in line with the will of God. Now, there's a great example of this, I think, in Jesus himself. Where the will of God is ultimately done and it's not in a prosperity gospel kind of way and that's usually what these verses allude to but when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane when he was agonizing in the garden and he prayed father if it be possible let this cup pass me by and what cup was he talking about but he was talking of the cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out upon him. And what did Jesus say after he prays this? He says, but not my will, but your will be done. Christ in his humanity submitted perfectly to the will of the Father. And we, as Christians, when we think about the things going on in our lives and what we want God to do, we can often get lost and say, well, God doesn't love me because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. He didn't save this person. He didn't mend this marriage. He didn't cure my cancer. But we can say, but God's will be done. 
and I will trust in God's will. I will have confidence that God is always good because I have confidence in the promises that he has laid out to us in Scripture. And the gospel is that God became flesh, that we are sinful, Christ is sinless, that he came to this earth, he lived the life that God requires us to live, and he died the death that you and I deserve. And Jesus did die, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we can disregard this book. We can disregard our faith. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, which he did, we can have confidence in the salvation that was accomplished. We can have confidence in the forgiveness of sins. We can have confidence that we have eternal life with the Father and that we give Jesus and God the glory for all that happens. We have a sin debt before the Father, and Jesus paid that sin debt. And here we can see we have salvation. We can be assured of this salvation. We have an advocate who gives us confidence to boldly approach the throne of grace. And this sin debt is paid by Jesus, and it's paid in full. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, if you do not know the, the good works that he has done for you, the forgiveness of sin, I urge you, I urge you to consider what was said that you can be saved. The salvation message is open for you. And if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, I pray that you have this confidence as you approach the throne. I pray that you have this assurance that you are beloved of God, that you are in his hand, and that nothing can take you out of the hand of God because Christ loses none that are brought to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the message that you have given to us through it, through, the, through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us assurance that we need not spend our lives here worrying about if we've done enough or if you're pleased with us enough. But in Christ, you are pleased with Christ and that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, strengthen our faith Help us in our unbelief, and let us go from here boldly proclaiming the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's turn for our closing hymn to hymn number 200, or excuse me, 308, Jesus Paid It All. We'll stand and sing together.
Amen. Now, we're looking forward to our lunch this afternoon, which will be downstairs, and which will be uh, honoring uh, Nellie Lynch in her retirement from uh, her service to the church. And uh, we'll be having a little program as a part of that. But I'm going to go ahead and ask the blessing now so that that will be done. And then we'll have the benediction. We'll go downstairs and we'll have another time of prayer down there, but not before the meal. This will be the, the prayer for our meal. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the beautiful testimony and theme that is a part of this hymn and a part of the message that was set before us this morning, that indeed Jesus paid it all. And it's because of that full payment we call upon you now, Lord. And we ask you as your people to bless us as we eat together. We thank you, Lord, for providing this food. We thank you, Lord, for the hands that have prepared it. And we thank you for the occasion that brings us together. We ask you, Lord, to bless the food to our bodies, to strengthen and nourish us by it. And Father, we pray that you would bless our fellowship together, that, Lord, it would be sweetened by your presence. And we thank you, Lord, again for the occasion, for the reason we are coming together, because we are believers who love one another and are thankful for one another and, Lord, wish to glorify you for the way that you work through your people for the blessing of all. We ask you now, Lord, to, to bless our food in Jesus' name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.